Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, the Oscars are so cray-cray. We've got some news about Kara Hoy and Soy Hark, uh, some in Hong Kong news with HMV and a streaming service, and Kevin's going to be telling us about Jackie Chan's latest with Kung Fu Yoga, and I'll be talking about the Japanese CGI animated film Gantz O. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida. And sitting at his reviews desk in the position of downward-facing dog is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hey, welcome to the latest episode of This American Life. Oh, wait, sorry, East Screen, West Screen. (laughs) Yeah, something like that, you know. How are you doing, sir? (laughs) All right. How about you? Uh, Not too bad, not too bad, Uh, you know. Weather's holding warm here. How are things there in Hong Kong? I'm feeling a bit chilly. I mean, it's it's not winter weather, but um, uh, feeling a bit chilly over here, and uh, just crazy busy because you know it's around the film mart, which means there's a pretty high demand for uh, translation of you know smaller stuff. So I've done some uh, translation for uh, uh, um, different companies uh, for their upcoming films. Uh, one of which is uh, I can. I guess I'm review is not a secret project or anything. One of these films is John Woo's Manhunt, so I've been doing some translation for that and a couple of other films for for that same company. Excellent, excellent. Now, do you, does that get you out into film art proper, or you you know, as, as the, these films get exported, are you still behind the scenes most of the time? I, I'm pretty behind the scenes. I mean, no, they, I mean I got a film art pass, um, but. I think this year I won't be uh, uh, attending, but uh, because of various schedule. I mean, I can talk about it a little bit later because it kind of has to do with uh, some of the festivals I'm attending, and also some. Uh, I'm also taking a trip back to the states, so timing's a bit bad for me to be out of the office. But uh, we can talk about that a little later. All right, excellent. When are you coming back stateside? Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'll be back from the 17th uh, for about a week, uh, for about 10 days for a friend's wedding, and uh, might as well stay home and and visit. You know. Take see my nephew and my niece and see my parents and you know watch a few films, um, make a make a decent vacation out of it. Uh, that's too bad because I'm we're we're doing a short trip to South Carolina on the 18th for that week that following week. So uh, otherwise I'd maybe fly out to to have a coffee or something because <laughs> you're so close, <laughs> so close. Yes, yeah, still a so six close hour but flight, so far, but, but still I mean. Yeah. <laughs> Six-hour flight, Paul. That's that's still pretty far from yeah, me. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, all right. So yeah, the, we've got lots of stuff coming up in terms of film. I mean, we're on the cusp of some of the bigger films. I mean, I, I, it's too early to kind of say we're in the summer blockbuster period, but we are starting with Logan next week, and then successively we're getting you know some bigger and bigger Hollywood films, and then we've also got the um, Hong Kong Film Art, and of course the international Hong Kong International Film Festival. Uh, following very shortly thereafter so lots of stuff to be coming our way film wise and uh, we'll hopefully 
have lots of things to talk about in the forthcoming episodes. Uh, but before we get into our news this week, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the films. Kevin's going to be talking, of course, about Jackie Chan's Kung Fu Yoga. And I had mentioned that I was possibly going to be able to get out to see a Korean film called Fabricated City, but unfortunately that is not playing anywhere in Florida. I've come to the conclusion that Florida just does not like Asians or Asian culture, because they, <laughs> at least in terms of, of film, because they just don't want to show Asian films here for the most part. There's a couple art house cinemas that show the occasional Bollywood film, and as I've talked about before, a couple things you know do make it down to the, a cinema down way down in Miami. Uh, but it's like, really, come on. I mean, none of this stuff is just, I, I guess, retirees, you know, and snowbirds, they just don't care. They don't want to see it. So the, the, they don't make it to these cinemas. Yeah, usually you find these Asian films playing at uh, sort of communities where there are large diaspora populations. So San Francisco Bay Area is really good about that. We actually have about when the Asian film Asian films come out, we should get about two to three cinemas in the same region in the Bay Area playing these films. And Elsewhere, um, for Chinese films, you would get them in uh, really random small towns, but mainly because they're college towns. So mm. a lot of the uh, uh, you get a lot of um, overseas students uh, living in those places, so Michigan or uh, I think um, uh, what Chicago and and uh, I think Chicago's my Michigan is so what I was like, oh that place, but you realize oh universities and things like that. So um, you, you you know it's just gotta be living near uh, college towns, Paul. Yeah, that's it. I gotta move. Go, go back to college which is kind of what I, <laughs> I want to do, but I, you know, I can't afford to do it right now. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, we'll be talking about those coming up. Um, but first, why don't we throw the talking stick back over to Kevin and get into this week's news. So, um, not not quite Asian, I guess we're starting with, but, uh, yo, what happened at the Oscars? <laughs> yeah, it was... Uh, what the- <laughs> okay, I don't. I it's well known that I don't like watching award shows. I find them insanely boring, and I'm interested in the results, reading the results the day after. But I, all the pomp and circumstances, I'd rather just be watching a movie during that time or playing a video game or pretty much doing anything else. And but even I had to kind of pause and the next morning and go watch the clips of what happened with the the whole sort of. Moonlight and La La Land Best Picture fiasco. I mean, that's a piece of history. And a lot of people have written that it's a piece of history that is unfortunately overshadowing the the very good film that is Moonlight. Um, You know, the news that it was actually Best Picture, instead of people talking about the film, they're actually talking more about the kerfuffle that happened. Part of me, a small, super conspiratorial part of me, I'm reminded of the Justin Timberlake, Janet Jackson incident that happened some years back with the Super Bowl. And, you know, if you all remember that, I think it was called like Nipplegate or something. And it turned out that that was like a big conspiracy to throw out ratings. And I could kind of see, you know, some guy in some back bedroom, you know, at the academy somewhere, some back boardroom coming up with this as an idea and you know having everybody play it off and maybe not everybody being being in on it but still something to kind of generate ratings because it turned out i think that this was one of the lowest rated oscars of all time despite people saying i remember my parents watched it they loved jimmy kimmel as the host they thought it was entertaining but i you know again i don't i don't think that's what happened but there's a small tiny inner conspiracy theorist inside me going yeah, it was planned. It was staged. It was fake. You know, <laughs> so I don't know. What was your take on it, Kevin? 
Well, I, I, I did you watch uh, Jimmy Kimmel's uh, sort of explanation of what happened uh, the next day? Because I mean, from from what he could tell, I mean, he was genuinely surprised because even he said, like, "Look, I love pranks, but like this this would not be the type of prank I would pull. Like, if yeah. it was if I was pulling a prank, I would say like it would be a coupon for Bed Bed Bath and Beyond yeah. instead of the wrong film's name. And, and, right? and if he's so gonna, if he's going to do a prank, it's got to involve Matt Damon because Matt Damon. Right? <laughs> um, but the thing too is. You know, they've had, uh, I guess, the company that's in charge of not really the organization, but I guess the handling of the announcements. The accountants. Um, yeah. Price Waterhouse, Price Cooper Waterhouse, Price Waterhouse Cooper, something like that. Price Waterhouse um, Cooper, yeah. They, they've come out, they've apologized. I've read a couple of news stories that were basically trying to throw I, somebody under the bus, some guy who was taking selfies with some of the celebs and uh, on Instagram or something and saying that, you know, got distracted and, and things got mixed up. I mean, simple solution, really simple solution. On the envelope, you simply list best picture, best actor, best actress, right? Because from what it looked like, they're just like blank red envelopes, right? Um, no, they actually have the, the category there, and it just seemed like no one read the envelope when mm, it got handed over. Okay. Um, and I think I think the problem, actually, if you look at the clip, uh, and it shows the actual uh, um, the, the, the result, you will see that the category of the award is actually the smallest. It's almost like a fine print yeah, beneath I mean, the, the winner, which is a terrible, blow, terrible design. Blow that sucker up to like 72 point New Times Roman or something so that people in the back row can see it on the envelope, right? Um, then, then this kind of thing maybe won't happen. I don't know. Yeah, so I think what happened was that this was the first year they used a new designer for those cards. So, um, first, and, and, uh, first and last, right? Yeah, first and last. And, of course, the PWC, what happens is that they had two envelopes for each category, one for each side of the stage, because the presenters come out on different sides of the stage. So the um, the two PWC uh, accountants, um, they're the only ones, they're the people who, who brought the results to the the show and they're the ones they're the only ones who know the result until the actual moment the uh the envelope is opened uh apparently uh the the guy on the right who had the 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 um duplicate best actress envelope um he was distracted or something and handed the wrong envelope to warren Beatty and uh and poor warren Beatty he didn't he was actually well, he no, knew no, that he was gonna not, make a mistake not poor warren Beatty because he passed it off to faye dunaway come on he passed the buck yeah, right but, over because he, he didn't. He didn't know true. what was going on. He just he like threw her under, he threw her under the bus. Actually, he threw her under the bus and let her make the mistake. And I, and I think that he was, was a, looking around. I think Jimmy Kimmel made a joke to that effect. You know, saying that you know it was basically a Clyde, Clyde Bonnie under the bus, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which is true, and, and it, it was funny because Faye, did, Faye Dunaway thought that he was Warren Beatty was joking around, and and but Warren Beatty was like, uh, "Dude, I was actually like looking around for help." <laughs> Just, well, and it, you're right, and you're right, and it's really sad because I was very very happy to know that Moonlight won. Actually, I was watching a live stream at work. Um, sorry if my bosses are listening. Um, and then when La La Land won, I was like, ah, screw it. I'm going to lunch. And I turned off the stream and I ran down and I, and I was buying lunch. And suddenly it blew up on Twitter. Like, wait, what the hell What the hell is going on? And I'm really happy that Moonlight won. And you're right. It's, it's really sad that the uh, it, it never sort of got its moment in the in the spotlight because it's really a worthy film. And the team is a really passionate team. And they're truly, truly deserving. And I think they're really happy. And they would have loved to have that moment on stage but instead it, it it's sort of overshadowed by this whole snafu yeah but i i 
I think in terms of the long game, um, because of this event, this is, I mean, this is going to be something that's going to be talked about definitely at next, next year's Oscars. They're going to be all over, you know, uh, what, what are they doing now? So this won't happen again. And this will come up in retrospectives and things. It's, it's a, it's a piece of film history now. And, at the very least, Moonlight is going to be attached to that piece of film history. So people may not remember what the best picture was, you know, five, six, seven years ago, but they're going to remember this. And they're, I think they're going to, over time, remember that Moonlight was associated with it. And perhaps La La Land, too. Yeah, um, which I think is still too bad because it was a, a historic moment. The fact that a, a black LGBT film won the best picture award for the first time ever, right? It, yeah. it made history on its own, but now it's sort of going to be attached to this moment for better or worse. And uh, I guess the, 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 the ghost of Steve Harvey, even though he's not dead, the ghost of Steve Harvey's <laughs> mistake <laughs> seems to haunt Hollywood. I guess. <laughs> I mean, what, when's the next time this is going to happen? Yeah. It's pretty bad when you're still alive and you're causing trouble through <laughs> your ghost, right? Um, all right. So if you saw the Oscars, if you'd like to, to weigh in your thoughts on uh, on that, uh, please do drop us a line. Any big surprises for you in tem- terms of any of the other big awards? Um, the only one that I, for me, that I was really, that I really cared about was, of course, Best Animation, which we talked about uh, a couple weeks back. And uh, my pick, my favor of the year was Zootopia, and then that did win, and so I was uh, happy to see that. Um, any any thoughts on the winners for you, Kevin? Well, uh, about La La Land, the thing is, I've seen, I love the film, all right, I love the film, but um, in the subsequent subsequent times, I watched, I've watched it three times already, by the way. The the magic sort of um, uh, lost, got lost on me, and and I sort of felt less enthusiastic about it, and I wasn't, I was hoping that it wouldn't win Best Picture, um, and but actually, I thought most of the awards were pretty deserving. I mean, Best you know Production Design and Director and Music. I mean, those were all really great things about the film that were deserving of awards, except for Emma Stone for Best Actress. Um, I really was pulling for Isabel Huppert because I really like Elle, especially performance, and I thought it was really brave, and Isabel Huppert had, had won pretty much all the awards coming leading up to the Oscars, so I was a bit disappointed that that um, uh, you know her first chance at an Oscar in 30, 40 years, and she lost out on a, on a I thought, a performance that was good, but I felt um, wasn't really Oscar worthy, um, um, but you know it's it's not it's just the Oscars. I mean it's just movie awards. I mean at the end of the day, the winners we all know that film industry, in the film industry, the winner is the one that makes the most money, and La La has made ton of money. So um, you know I'm not gonna you know it's not like Crash winning Best Picture. I was I'm still sore over Crash winning Best Picture, but mm-hmm. you know it, it's a it's fine. Um, the other one is uh, Suicide Squad. Academy yeah. Award best, winner, best costume and makeup was it? Best makeup, I think. Yeah. But the worst thing is, if you look at the, um, oh, yeah. there was an image. Yeah, what one? Was best image costume? Because com- I remember the Harry Potter movie was up. Yeah, yeah, the uh, Fantastic Beast one best costume. Yeah. But um, there was a photo comparing the uh, makeup on uh, uh, another nominee, Star Trek Beyond, versus Suicide Squad, and you're just like. That's makeup, like Star Trek aliens. Now that's real makeup. The other makeup, you know, in in Suicide Squad, is just ha- you know Haley Quinn's uh, uh whatever makeup she was wearing and dyeing her hair, right? So it's like, why did that happen? Star Trek Beyond clearly had better makeup, even though 
okay, film wasn't great, but you know, it had much better well, makeup. Well, you know, maybe the Academy was, you know, maybe they're going through their goth phase and they really liked the way that Enchantress's makeup was done. You know, that sort of goth teenage girl look. That's oh, in, please, in the, now, right? <laughs> oh, please, the incessant hip swinging made up most of that performance. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, all right. Uh, again, if you have thoughts on the Oscars, please please do drop us oh. a line and know what you think. Did you want to add something, Kevin? Yes, I do. Because actually, the Oscar the Oscar foul up reminded me that you know we have the Hong Kong Film Awards coming up uh, next month in in April, and it just reminds me keep Sandra Ng off the stage because Sandra Ng is the most likely person to make that mistake when she's on stage. Every time she gets on stage to present something, she likes to mess with the audience and always want to blur out Peter Chan, even though he's not nominated. So, like, I, I am betting that Sandra Ng, someone is going to try and pull that gag at this year's Hong Kong for more. So someone, please keep Sandra Ng off the stage. There you go. You got fair warning, uh, Hong Kong Film Awards. All right, speaking of awards, let's move back over to Asia, and you've got some Kara Hoi news for us. That's right. Uh, Kara Hoi, uh, whose latest film is, uh, well, actually, she's nominated for Happiness, uh, the Hong Kong Film Awards, but she will be attending the Osaka Asian Film Festival with uh, the uh, the action, Malaysian action film, uh, Mrs. K, because she is receiving the Osaka Asia Star Award. Um, essentially, it's the, it, it's the um, Lifetime Achievement Award equ- equivalent for that particular festival. Um, and um, it's um, quite an achievement. I mean, it's it's a culmination of a, what, 30, 40-year career. Um, and it's almost fitting that, that you know, she would get it for her final action film, uh, Mrs. K, which you know, this is what she said is going to be her final action film. Um, and, of course, the other reason why i'm bringing up is because i am going to attend the osaka asian film festival um i won't be there for that award i'll be there towards the latter half of the festival um so it's sort of you know considering i'm carrying a press badge i feel like i have an obligation to talk about it mm-hmm. <laughs> at the show uh, here on the show but um yeah really cool um mrs k is still sort of going through a festival circuit um not so it's not uh coming in for theatrical release yet but uh, i've seen the film and i think um uh, Karahui's action scenes are are some of the best she's done, and uh, and she's really deserving of the award. All right, excellent. Another sort of Hong Kong alum also getting an award is going to be Tsui Hark, right? That's right, Trey Hark, uh, who's um, starting pre-production on the new Detective D film. He's going to be uh, the recipient of this year's Lifetime Achievement Award at the Asian Film Awards. Um, the Asian Film Awards now, and I think in seventh or eighth uh, installment uh, this year, is coming back to Hong Kong. It's being held on March twenty first, the week after Film Art. And um, Trey Hark, uh, who I don't think he's nominated for anything this year, um, because um, Journey to the West, of course, came out after the qualifying period, so it's not you know it's not he's not nominated for anything this year. But he's been nominated before at Asian Film Awards. Uh, I think most recently for taking up Tiger Mountain, and um, he will be getting a, a much-deserved Lifetime Achievement Award, even though clearly Trey Hart still has plenty of uh, work left in his life. So no, um, no, but, no best split-second cameo for the bodyguard? Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> I almost forgot about that. But no, I don't think Trey Hart's going to be up for any acting award anytime soon. But, uh, you know, he, he, again, another... another distinguished um uh film industry figure and it's always good to you know i mean he's despite his 
despite Journey to the West, bad word of mouth, and, and he is not really the most consistent of directors. He is a pioneer in the Hong Kong film industry, and uh, and um, I hope that he still has a lot of films left in him. Yeah. They could give him best couch sitter for The Mermaid, right? Because <laughs> he, he had a cameo or, there too, right? Yeah, best mustache, perhaps, <laughs> or... Uh, craziest most frantic edits in a film ever because if you've seen legend uh, sorry zoo warriors legend of zoo also has crazy amount of editing but zoo warriors still sort of just throw me throw me into like a, a dizzy spiraling into the ground kind of dizziness really still to this day so yeah i get that too but that's just because of Ikan chang so that's the no, even even the, the first, the first, dude, the first one's even crazier. Remember that scene where you got all these people, like like twenty people, hung on a wire, like blowing, like like being sent in all directions. Yeah. I mean, that that stuff is still not being, cannot be recreated today. I mean, imagine all the wires that's needed. This guy is crazy. Um, so so you know, um, yeah. he's one of the the fools, the fools who dream. You know, to quote La La Land. And we, yeah. I think you mentioned last time we are or on a recent episode, if it wasn't the last one. We are looking at a new Detective D film at some point in the near future, right? Yes, it's in pre-production now. Um, although we don't know who who's going to be in it. Not not Andy Lau. I think it's going to be along the sequel, the prequel uh, route. Um, but I'm I'm still waiting for him to use a real deer. For <laughs> I'm still waiting for him to use real animals. Because remember, I always say for the first Detective D film, the film the the scene where Andy gets um, ambushed by a bunch of deers, I said. 20, 30 years ago, Treyarch would have used real deers. Yeah. So I'm still waiting for him to go back to using real deers. But um, no, you know, he, he loves his computer graphics. So maybe not. All right. And our next bit of news about HMV for fans out there who may not be familiar. HMV is a big sort of media chain. Originally, I think they're out of the UK, right? And the UK, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were, you know, basically like a um, you know big media store selling movies and things. And they had quite a few branches while I was there, and most of them closed down. Yes, they still have uh, a few. They still have at least three that I know of. Four, I think, four. So there's still a few left. But um, uh, HMV was uh, actually each of the uh, Asian countries that they're in are actually owned by local firms, um, not by HMV home company. I mean, they used to be. But uh, I think Japan's been bought up by Lawson. Uh, yes, the same people who run the convenience stores. And in Hong Kong, uh, a year or two ago, they were bought up by China 3D Entertainment. Uh, China 3D, if you don't know, is uh, if you watch movies, Hong Kong movies, you recognize there's a film company with a logo where there's a guy in sunglasses waving around a Chinese flag. Um, that's China 3D. That's, these are the guys behind Sex and Zen 3D and uh, also uh, do West and a few other local films, but uh, yeah, the company bought out, uh, took over HMV operation I think a year or two ago, and they've been they've been uh, they've kind of transformed it sort of partly, or they kind of finished the, tra- the transformation from uh, just purely a record store into um, a store that sells you know all kinds, half a headphone store and toy store and and children's books and all kinds of crap. Essentially yeah. diversifying, I guess business terms, they diversified HMV's operation um, here in Hong Kong. And their latest operation is a uh, uh, internet VOD service um, called HMVOD, 
So uh, as the title suggests, I think they're directly challenging Netflix here in in, in, in Hong Kong and also, I guess, to to a certain extent, a prime video. Um, they're providing uh, online streaming service um, and for, for a lot of, uh, of course, quite a few Hollywood films. But most significantly, they'll be offering, I think, one of the most comprehensive uh, or the biggest streaming libraries of, of uh, local films um, here in Hong Kong. So you would have uh, just looking. I'm just going to go there and look at it right now while we're recording. They have uh, a whole selection of Leslie Chen films. Um, of course, they own a number of, they distribute a number of their own films. So I'm sure they're going to put it on. One of the first releases will be their latest Yuppie Fantasia movie, which they distributed here in Hong Kong. Uh, and they also hold what appear to be um, HD copies of Chinese classics, like uh, just scrolling down here, uh, also ends well 2. <laughs> um, what is this? Oh, that is one of those. Okay, Dragon Tiger Gate, uh, Drive, so a bunch of uh, Pegasus films. Of course, Loretta Lee's uh, uh, softcore uh, <laughs> Category 3 film, um, Kung Fu Hustle, and I see Ninth Happiness, um, and uh, yeah, quite a few films. And of course, uh, Viva Erotica, Shanghai Grand, uh, Ro- Rouge, um, Okinawa Rendezvous, uh, Double Tap. So, you know, a pretty comprehensive, a pretty, well, not comprehensive, but pretty large library of um, of local films that uh, other streaming services don't offer. Um, and they also say that they will be off, they will be doing their own productions uh, in the coming few, in the coming uh, years. Uh, they're offering two types of, or they want, they're offering a monthly subscription uh, for Hong Kong, $88 a month. And then um, for the newer films, for newest films, actually, uh, monthly members, we get two new films, enough points for two new films a month. And then they have to pay extra uh, for 48 hour streaming windows of the newest films. Um, I guess it's pretty good. I mean, I don't I already subscribe to quite a few rental services, so I don't really want to. But if there are more sort of Japanese films and more uh, Hong Kong films, newer stuff. I might be thinking about getting the service, actually. Um, unfortunately, I don't know it's available outside of Hong Kong. I don't think it is. So, Paul, um, I'm afraid that you won't be able to take advantage of this deal. But um, if you are living in Hong Kong and um, haven't signed up for Netflix or if you have an interest in in seeing more uh, Hong Kong cinema, uh, I think this would be uh, the way to go. Well, I'm definitely interested. I'll try and I'll, I'll give it a shot and see if I can VPN it and um, see if it works that way. Um, yeah, you can actually subscribe via the App Store. So if you have some money in the in your Apple iTunes account. You can just load it up and then have the the, the monthly fee deducted from there. I think that's like what which is what I do with Netflix and Spotify at the moment. So I'm I'm a bit confused about the you mentioned something about points because with Netflix, it's an all or nothing kind of thing now for streaming, um, right? And and the sort of mail order system that they had originated with you can kind of do as, as an extra thing. The points here are you talking about, is that for mail order or is that for new movies that get put up and are in addition to the basic streaming membership? So the basic streaming membership uh, lets you watch the older films unlimited, I, I assume, uh, unlimited access to the older films. But for the newest films, um, they have it on the so-called uh, 48-hour streaming window. So you would have, so each member gets 60 points, I think, a month. And you use those points to get 48-hour streaming windows of new films. And essentially, you get enough points each, each month to watch two films for free. 
and then afterwards i think you have to pay extra to rent those films for the 48 hour window uh so but then the thing is for those films non-members can pay and rent those films as well um so i guess the the advantage of the 88 dollars subscription uh is to get access to the older films and of course the local films as well but you do want to watch the newest films for example the new yuppie fantasia or a bunch of the hollywood stuff uh you are able you won't have to sign up for a membership you can just rent them um okay. I, uh, I cost. yeah so it's 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 a bit more along the lines with a prime membership versus netflix where with prime you get access to the old stuff but like a new movie that's newly released you can only rent it from amazon until it right. gets booted down to prime some months later yeah, although I think it seems to be they they're putting more films up on uh, this so-called this rent rental window. I mean, they even put sort of older films like Battleship and Everest on that forty-hour window system. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sure how many films you will get access to if you're a member, and how many films you have to pay for, uh, even if you pay for a mem- uh, monthly membership. All right, interesting. Uh, well, uh, again, I'll try and uh, experiment with it and report back perhaps next time on my success or failure with the system. I, I got to wonder, though, I mean, you would think that with a, something like this, I know rights are, is an issue that we've covered a lot before, they got to be thinking a little bit beyond just Hong Kong if they want to be fiscally successful, because Hong Kong is such a small market. I think that they'd at least be considering, you know, offering this throughout Southeast Asia, maybe? If not well, what they've... What they've done here is they actually using they're using the platform uh, that they acquired last year called Anyplex. Anyplex was the sort of online it was an online rental service uh, with streaming, and they've they've essentially um, inherited the I think a ten a membership of ten thousand people so far 10,000 subscribers Mm. and they said today um, their big sort of unveiling was today they said that they only need fifty thousand members for them to break even. so so i think they're limited to hong kong at the moment um after all i mean like you said rights issues are very complicated and um and i think they they do cater to more local companies who are not comfortable with the idea of of selling the global rights i mean so far i think i've only seen one hong kong company that's on board with netflix's model and that's golden scene so -hmm. thanks to golden scene um a lot of their local films have now have global releases uh via netflix i think um, I'm not sure if they're on U.S. Netflix, but Paul, you can check if um, Dot to Dot or maybe Chat if they're on the U.S. Netflix. If they are, then that means they've sold the uh, the global rights. But um, but even now, not not a lot of uh, companies are on board with Netflix global model yet. I think they're not not comfortable with selling such a wide area. So HMV OD. Not only did, did they have to, not only did, were they safe from building a brand, brand new platform, um, I think they have a bit more clout with the local companies in terms of acquiring films. Hmm. Yeah, indeed. Um, well, it'll be interesting to see what, you know, what they come up with. I don't see a dot to dot on Netflix as I look now, but I, I do recall seeing it on uh, iTunes. So, <coughs> um, yeah, we'll have to have to wait and see and uh, definitely interested to give this service a try at some point all right uh final bit of news this week yeah so uh, along the lines of streaming i was checking netflix today and and some they've they've now uploaded their first cantonese language programs uh or at least cantonese tv series um so i was doing a bit uh checking and i think they're also available on the u.s netflix They've acquired. It seems like they've acquired a uh, they, uh, um, a large number of uh, series produced by RTHK, the 
um, I guess, government-sponsored, subsidized um, radio and television station here in Hong Kong. Uh, RTHK stands for Radio Television Hong Kong, by the way. So um, checking Netflix, they now currently have three series online. Um, one is called My Family Doctor. Uh, one is called The Neighborhood, which starts Chin Soho. And another one, um, it, and there was a third one, I believe. Um, now, RTHK series have been available, pretty much available online. They have a pretty deep archive, a, a, a pretty large archive of their TV series. And I was just checking, and RTHK's website still has these shows on their website. Um, and they are supposed to be available for free because these are made with, they, these are produced with, you know, taxpayers' money. Um, but this will be the first time that these shows are available with English subtitles and um, I believe outside of Hong Kong. I don't think, um, again, Paul, you have to check, but I don't think the RTHK series are, are accessible outside of Hong Kong. But now they are. And uh, uh, Paul, if you want a little taste of home, um, you can catch The Neighborhood or uh, My Family Doctor. Uh, these shows are always on uh, because um, both any Hong Kong free television station are legally required to show RTHK programs for a certain number of hours each week. So every day before prime time for about an hour, you get these RTHK programs, which sometimes they're news documentaries and sometimes they'll be these single episode, these dramas, uh, half hour dramas. Uh, so the three shows right now, these are the the, the uh, old, older, I think two, three years ago, um, uh, half hour dramas that would be on at around 7 p.m. before prime time. Um, I've watched one episode of The Neighborhood actually today, and actually it's a pretty decent show. It's actually pretty decently produced, and and it's pretty charming, even though we don't get you know recognizable stars. But um, uh, these are actually not that bad at all. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm looking now. Um, both My Family Doctor and The Neighborhood. I've just added them into uh, my list, and yeah, I I you know going back if you go back to look at the pedigree of RTHK. I mean, they go back to Anne Hoy and Andy Lau and Tony Lung and a lot of people working through these, you know, these government-sponsored shows over the years. Um, and usually they're, you know, they're symbolic of the times, you know, they tend not to get too politically in your face, but there's usually some kind of morality message or morality play with what's happening now. Um, so I always find them very, very interesting. Uh, and I'm glad to see that at least a couple of these are on Netflix. I'm sure that my wife will be happy to watch them too. Um, both of these look like they were from 2014, so fairly recent as well. Yeah, um, we talk about the RTHK history. I mean, below the Lion Rock, um, uh, the ones from the 70s, like you said, made by En Hui and Alan Fong, they, they're still considered some of the sort of best um, works by the two directors uh, even to this day. Uh, you talk about Below the Lime Rock, there was a one episode that uh, was about um, uh, essentially families who live on wa- fishermen, families of fishermen, and they live on water, I think. Uh, no, I think they're like people who live in fishing ports or whatever from the 70s, and that is still being, that was shown in film school when I was in film school, I mean, just a few years ago. So they are, they're quite landmark stuff, and of course now they're not as big but um they're still pretty well produced because um rthk system is that they invite creators to pitch to rthk they and then and then if they like to pitch then they commission they would get paid for the budget and these people will go and make the shows and they give come back with the content so they they sort of get a bit more freedom in some way than than the usual big networks uh, because these are done with pitches and these are sort of um uh they're not 
they're not tied to I guess they're not tied to commercial interests. So a lot of these um they're the, the creators are not quite well known, but um they, I think there's a done with a certain passion and uh, a certain um technical um I guess know how that's sort of trend they actually I found I found them better shot than usual T V B stuff. So I was quite surprised at how good actually how well shot the neighborhood was. Uh, I think that's a that'll be a show that you enjoy, Paul. All right, excellent. Glad to see more and more stuff coming from Hong Kong, Singapore, Japan, everywhere else over to Netflix. Of course, now it's just a case of finding the time to watch it all. (laughs) All right, let's take a short musical break, and we'll be back with Kevin's review of Jackie Chan's latest, Kung Fu Yoga. And welcome back. He's the man known as Jackie Chan, and he's here with a new film where he combines kung fu and yoga. Am I am I hearing that correctly? Um, so, Kevin, take us through the what's what of his latest film. That's right. Kung Fu Yoga is uh, Jackie Chan's uh, latest film. It's his second release in just two months, uh, coming out after Railroad Tigers. Uh, it reunites him with director Stanley Tong, who, as you probably know already, was the director of Super Cop, uh, First Strike, and Rumble in the Bronx. Um, I think this is the first film together since, uh, gosh, maybe First Strike? I don't remember. It was in quite a, quite a long time since Jackie Chan worked with uh, Stanley Tong. Um Anyway, the story, uh, Chinese archaeology professor Jack, played by Jackie Chan, teams up with beautiful Indian professor Ashmita, played by Disha Patani, and assistant Kira, played by Amra Dester, to locate the lost Mac, Mac, Magada, Mac, Magada, Magada, okay, sorry, Magada treasure um, in a Tibetan ice cave. They find the remains of the royal army that vanished together with the treasure, but they're ambushed by Randall, played by Sanud Sud, the descendant of a rebel army leader. With the help of Joneses, played by Eric Lee, the son of Jack's late friend, the team travels to Dubai and India to find the lost treasure. So uh, this was meant to be an India-China co-production, uh, but uh, I think sometime into the production, the India side dropped out, and I think it's quite easy to see why. Um, I think the India side was, uh, from what I hear, is that they were displeased with the way the production was, uh, the Chinese control over the production. And uh, I think if they read the script, they would be pretty unhappy with what they see. Um, It's written and directed by someone who's clearly stuck in the 1990s stereotype of India. I mean, their idea of India is um, uh, uh, still India rope trick and, and, uh, uh, you know, Bollywood, bad Bollywood dance. And uh, just really the, some of the worst stereotypes you can think of about India. It just sort of reinforces how Chinese people sort of see outside their world. It's it's um, it's almost like I, I think it would it would be perfectly fine. If it was made in the 1990s, but it's 2017 for Christ's sakes, right? Um, it takes the most superficial parts of Indian culture, and then all of it is done to prop up China. I mean, everyone in this film who is not Chinese. Anyone, anyone who's not the male villain 
<clears throat> it's almost there just to give Jackie Chan comp- and, and China compliments. You know, oh, you know, Jackie Chan somehow is somehow India needs China's best archaeologists to find their treasure. Like India doesn't have enough people. <laughs> like India can't find their own archaeologists to go find a lost treasure. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and Ashmita's mention of the one belt one row policy made me vomit a little bit because the one belt one row policy is uh, China's the Chinese government. And sorry, have to touch politics a little bit here. Uh, it's the Chinese government's sort of uh, Silk Road initiative or modern Silk Road initiative, trying to uh, rope in all these Asian countries into a, a, essentially a trade a trade agreement in a way. Um, and and I think the film is trying to push India as to be a part of the one belt one road policy um but the funny thing is india hasn't even joined one belt run road yet so there's almost like a propaganda move to go to india and show us look you should join us and become part of the one belt one road policy it, it it was just really a bit disturbing to be honest um but back to the film itself there's a bit there's a bit more jackie chan-esque action than railroad tiger so i think uh, uh jackie chan fans would like this one more um there are two at least two decent action sequences here um there's a car chase through dubai which is just super super silly but um it's quite fun to watch and there's a, a sequence uh involving hyenas that shows Arif lee and uh uh Really good action for me. I, I think actually Arif Lee, I think he's the best actor in the film. He was even better than Jackie Chan. He speaks fluent English and he he speaks it really well. He acts well in English and he's quite charming and he's obviously physically fit. And I think he could be a uh, and he's really popular in China at the moment. But I think Arif Lee really has a chance to branch out if he has better roles. Um, Unfortunately, he's working with Stanley Tong, so all Stanley Tong has to offer uh, uh, is action sequences. Um, everything else is pretty dreadful and really flat-out embarrassing. Um, I mean, the film ends with a Bollywood dance sequence that doesn't even have Indians in it. Like, they couldn't... I think that whole sequence is shot in China, so they couldn't find any Indian extras. So they have they had the... Uh, what was called the chinese coal mine dance troupe come out and do a dance that was choreographed by a uh, bollywood legend farrah khan but if you want to imitate a bollywood movie don't just steal the dancing i mean every film that ends with i mean i'm even talking about slumdog millionaire right they end the film with bollywood dancing and say this is a tribute to bollywood but learn the structure and why these how these dance number works in a bollywood film i mean like any musical these bollywood these sequ- dance sequences are there to 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 push the story they're part of the story they're part of the storytelling and you see the characters when they sing actually they are sort of narrating the story um although yes okay there are something called item numbers in bollywood movie but i mean item numbers is is a unique bollywood thing where they have a random dance sequence in the middle featuring a a really sexy woman who is not part of the story just do a random dance number featuring the lead actor but but you know the basic rule of musical is that the dance sequences should be pushing the film. Don't just put a bunch of Indians or people in Indian clothing at the end of the film and say you're imitating a Bollywood movie because that is not what a Bollywood film is. All right. Um, sorry, that's a bit of rant. But anyway, um, I fell asleep, but I've read the script before. I actually uh, sort of did a bit of translation work on a film. Um, but I'm, So I read the script, so I know what happens in a film. And uh, even though I fell asleep while watching it, I distinctly remember a lack of yoga in the film. For at least for a film called Kung Fu Yoga, 
Jackie Chan doesn't use yoga to solve anything in this film. <laughs> um, in fact, he's not even the character that knows yoga. I think um, the most yoga you see was a uh, is in a total throwaway scene just after the opening of the film where you see the uh, Ashmita and the two younger members of Jackie's team doing yoga. And that's it. And that's pretty much all the yoga that's in the film. Um, and I think in the ice sequence also, there's a bit of yoga, but yoga doesn't save the day here. So there's more Kung Fu, way more Kung Fu than yoga in Kung Fu Yoga. Um, and I guess that sort of represents what happened to the production. You know, um, When the film was over, I turned to the members of the movie group and I asked, what the hell did India do to deserve this movie? <laughs> like, why does that deserve China? <sighs> Like India has a rich cinematic culture, and they have a lot of cinematic talents. They make, they do make really technically proficient films. And um, speaking of which, um, I found it really funny because C. Y. Learn, um, our chief executive here, said in a recent policy address that as a part of the one run road, uh, one belt one road policy, uh, they should invite uh, uh, film people from India to come to Hong Kong to learn filmmaking, which I'm like. India makes like 300 films a year. They have like 50 film industries. If anything, Hong Kongers should be going to India to learn how to make movies. And and when I'm like, and, and this sort of like China sort of uh, um, uh, showing off over India with this film, I'm just wondering what the hell did India do to deserve this movie? It didn't, you know, like India could have made a movie called Kung Fu India better. Um, and it's sad that it came at the hand of Jackie Chan. Um, so Stanley Tong really at the end should just stick to directing action scenes, not action movies, action scenes. Like she just gets someone else to go direct the rest of the movie, and he can do he can go do all the action he wants. He's a great action director, and you know we know that from China Strike Force, from all the other films that he's done. He's a great action director, but once he had to like deal with story and like characters and like people talking and like people emoting he's terrible at it um uh so yeah kung fu yoga pretty embarrassing but honestly there are points there are some parts where i did kind of enjoy myself and uh and i am very very ashamed to admit it (laughs) don't be don't be ashamed embrace (laughs) embrace the yoga right um, <laughs> if there was more yoga in the film, I would embrace well, the yoga, Paul. This is the thing. It's you know, if this was a Jackie Chan film from the late seventies, you would expect that this was about some young student, you know, getting beaten up on by an evil villain, and then going to a mountain and learning to combine yoga into kung fu, and coming back and using that as the secret technique to overcome, you know, the 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 adversary so it's it's just it seems like you know even even something like shaolin soccer you you get the idea of this sort of mashup between the sport of soccer and the idea of you know um kung fu right here it there's none of that is basically what you're saying there there, there, there there's no sense of that sort of cultural convergence no, no, it's more like cultural dominance <laughs> honestly <laughs> um, yeah if there was if it was I, you know, when you see a story called a movie title called Kung Fu Yoga, yes, that's what you'd be expecting, where Jackie Chan actually learns to use yoga to become a better Kung Fu artist or martial artist. But that doesn't happen. It's all about China showing off their their clout over India, and that's what Kung Fu Yoga is, and it's, it's a shame. One thing I do look see it on the filmography here, 
they last worked together in 2005 <laughs> on The Myth, right? Which was the sort of uh, <laughs> Korean. Now, that's, that's one I haven't seen because I actually bought the I bought the DVD of it, and the there was I, I went to watch it like a long time later. I'd lost the receipt, and it didn't work. And so I've got the DVD like sitting somewhere, and it's a it's a non-working DVD, and I've just never gone back to watch the movie. I didn't feel like buying it again. Um, so well, yeah, actually, like like the myth, uh, Kung Fu Yoga also ends uh, in a really really fake cave that probably is a set because they can't afford to shoot in a real cave. So yeah, there are similarities there between that one and the myth. Based on his what were his last three films, right? So we've got uh, his American film with uh, what was it, Johnny Knoxville, and uh, then you've got uh, the Railroad Tigers, and then this is is he just sort of in kind of a Wang Jing? I've got to make a movie mode and just gonna slap some stuff together. Do you think, or is he in a? Is this really just him trying to play more for the mainland China market and? you know, not really caring about sort of the international market anymore? Because a, a film like this kind of seems like an extension of, you know, something like he might have done with Project A, where he's like, you know, or, or Armor of God, where he's bringing in an, an international cast and and he's trying to, um, you know, really play to the international audience. Does it feel like he's attempting that and failing, or is he just sort of on auto mode? Well, it's a bit of both, actually. I mean, clearly Jackie Chan has been super prolific, and he's been really busy. He's shooting back-to-back-to-back-to-back films because he's all done out of his own company. Um, And like I said, this originally was supposed to be an India-China co-production. So it's clearly Jackie Chan trying to have sort of his kick and eat as well because he's doing an international production, but with a mainland Chinese sort of state of mind. You know, I mean, like, these sort of nationalism stuff. I mean, it's not a it's not a new thing in Chinese cinema. So he's trying to play, do the international production thing, but also at the same time pander to a Chinese audience. Um, and, of course, he's, he, of course, when it comes to choosing between the two, he's always going to have to pander to China because more money there, and he's no longer sort of a guaranteed box office name outside of China anymore. Um, so, so um, he's trying to do both, I think. For our next review this week, uh, as I said, I was not able to get out to see uh, anything in the cinema, unfortunately. But I did get a chance to sit down with the film from Japan, the animated film Gantz O, which was released in October of last year and has recently hit Netflix. So I popped it up in my queue and I I gave it a go. I'm not a huge Gantz fan. uh, So let me say off the bat, I haven't read the manga, but I do have the background of seeing the two live action films. And that's somewhat informative of, you know, the, the, this particular piece of work. It's, it's helpful in a sense, and I'll get into a little bit more about why that is. For the uninitiated, the story of Gantz, and this is kind of a, a retelling, 
um, of the the Gantz story. Uh, but basically, what happens is people end up dying and they get sucked up into this room with a big black ball, and they are then tasked by this ball to go out and hunt monsters, and they're given sort of super sci-fi weapons and black sort of uh, rubber suit armor, uh, skin-tight armor to go out and do this. And if they survive, they get points. And if they die, well, they're dead for good. Um, with the points, you can choose over time. If you get up to 100 points, you can get out of this game that you're stuck in. You can resurrect another player, um, or you can upgrade your weaponry to bigger and, and badder things. Um, and so here we get the sort of uh, central character here, um, this time it's Kay Kurono, um, or, or sorry, not Kay, Kay's the, the, the original sort of protagonist. Um, here it's his, uh, it's an, it's another partner and it gets a little convoluted. That's why I'm, I'm kind of mixing the, the, <laughs> the, the story up here. Masaru Koto. Okay. Sorry. Masaru Koto. Um, both of the characters have stronger roles in the live action film from 2011. Um, and I should mention, this is coming from director uh, Yasushi Kawamura. It's his first film credit, uh, as it were. He's worked on some video games and some other stuff. This is his first film credit. And this is coming from the production company Digital Frontier, who is responsible for the two 2011 live-action films. Um, they are also responsible for some other manga to live-action films, such as Death Note and uh, L Change the World. They've also... They are kind of at the forefront for CGI animation film releases as well, with things like uh, the Appleseed films, um, the two animated Resident Evil films, Degeneration and uh, Damnation. Um, and they uh, are also um, known for Summer Wars, which is I, uh, sort of a regular um, 2D enemy, I believe. I haven't seen that one yet. Um, so they're behind this. And what that really means is that you've got pretty much cutting-edge state-of-the-art animation um, for the time being, for the time of release, right? Um, and it, so the film looks good. Uh, this, but where it sort of falls apart is is with the storytelling um, because you get this character who's kind of thrown into this world and everything happens over the course of the night. So if you, you're familiar with the manga or you're familiar with the two live-action films, um, you get a bit more time for character development, but here everything is happening within the course of a single night, a single game, as it were. And so they kind of go for broke in this night, but ultimately <clears throat> the idea of the character relationships that are forming through this night are kind of hard-pressed. Um, and our central character, as he gets thrown into this and tries to make sense of it, and ultimately, you know, will he be victorious or not, it's kind of all just too soon. It's all, all too sudden. Um, he, he gets over the initial shock fairly quickly. He develops a relationship with other players way too quickly. Um, and ultimately, you know, it, it achieves its sort of denouement uh, way too quickly for my taste. Um, had this been done in a similar manner to the more recent uh, Netflix release, uh, Cyborg 009, as sort of a 12-episode arc where you've got many hours to work through this and develop the characters further it might have worked a bit better but here you're really looking at you know uh, just over a 90 minute movie uh, 96 minutes in total running time and it's just it, it's it there's no development um, into if you're new to the Gantz myth mythos you're really gonna have no idea what's going on 
um, because unlike the two live action films, it doesn't even attempt to really get into the background of, of the black ball or anything about that. It's really just focusing on, all right, characters are out there, it's game night, and let's do some big bang action sequences. And for that part, it really works. Um, there's still a few places where there's some uncanny valley happening, but really this is, if you're a fan of sort of CG animation that's trying to be super realistic, this is really the cream of the crop at the moment. Um, they've really come a long way since um, some of the stuff they did in Appleseed, and if you're familiar with like the the Final, fa fa Final Fantasy Advent Children film that uh, also used this technique, um, where they're kind of mashing up what is kind of the look of young popular actors today in Japan and places like South Korea, that kind of boy band look, but also taking it a little bit further into sort of the anime-esque anime realm. So uh, I find that to be a very interesting look and one that can work really well when it's done well, and it's done very, very well here. But still, they slip into some Uncanny Valley moments, um, and so that can be jarring at times. Uh, but really, it's if you're new to this, I can't recommend it because you're going to kind of be scratching your head unless you just want to see the spectacle. And if you're just in it for the spectacle, I think you'll have a good time. The monster designs are great, and uh, they can do a lot more here than they can in the live-action films just because of the nature of the medium. I mean, you get... Um, really big battles at times with monsters that run the gambit from, you know, small man-sized monsters to really big Goliath things. Um, and in some ways, it's much more video game-esque because you've got your protagonist here. He's really a newbie. He's kind of like a level one player in a big MMO. And you've got veteran players. Um, the, the characters here run, who are the Tokyo-based team, they end up running across the Osaka-based team. Um, no real rhyme or reason. It's just that there's a big attack happening in Osaka, so the Tokyo team gets pulled over to Osaka, so they have encounters with the Osaka team who are kind of hardcore veterans, and they're like every jerky game online gamer you've ever met. And then there's like the super-duper high-level guy uh, who's very cocky and very elite, and he's even got like a massive super-sized robot. So it's got elements from all over the place, giant robots, Pacific Rim stuff going on. Um, you can see stuff, but it's really holding back to the, the core, sort of core idea of Gantz. It's you win the game or you die, basically. And if you win, you live to play another day. Um, but again, the character relations are really problematic. They're forced over the course of this single night. And so one of the characters um, that fans will be familiar with um, you know, she's kind. She kind of end up ends up getting in this very instantaneous infatuation with Masaru Kato, and um, it's just not. Uh, it's it's not believable for me. Um, and it is what it is because it's an animation. But I think they could have maybe stretched it out over the course of multiple nights or something. Um, there's the relationship with the main. There's the idea that the main character has a young brother he's taking care of. Um, and so he's trying, he, you know, his impetus is to try and get back, get out of the game because he has to take care of his brother. Um, that was a theme that was relevant in the live action films as well. So there are things that are familiar enough with people who've seen the live action films or who've read the manga that will make the spectacle here very entertaining. Um, but again, for the new person, the neophyte coming into this, it's going to be a head scratcher. But it is really good to see that 
this is getting a good treatment. It's getting a fairly, you know, fairly recent release because, again, this is an October film from 2016 uh, showing up on Netflix so soon in its kind of original form. Um, I don't know if it was edited down at all. I don't think so. It's got very adult content. It's got an MA, TV MA rating. I think it would be listed as rated R if it got a cinematic release, maybe category three if it got a uh, Hong Kong release because there's definitely a lot of violence, some gore, and some nudity in places. So it goes to territories far beyond what the live-action films did do. And so that adult nature may also appeal to some fans out there. I mean, the the, 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 the nudity is really basically one of the monsters. Is It becomes constructed with the naked bodies of women. Um, so it becomes this sort of huge construct. I mean, it's really kind of creepy and creative at the same time. Um, but it's, again, because of the medium, they're able to do stuff like this and have it be far more effective sort of in that visual space than if you had maybe live actors there. Uh, there are there are a couple of the monsters that don't seem to fit quite so well. And one of the things that seems a bit different is that from what I remember from the live-action films, they were implying that the monsters were aliens. And here that's not really the implication because a lot of the monster designs are pulled from Japanese mythology. So if you're familiar with things like the Tengu and the Kappa and things that show tend to show up in sort of the kids' monster movies from Japan, you see a lot of those familiar uh, monster designs here represented as well. A couple of them feel out of place, but a lot of them feel, you know, like they fit in the space with these very realistic-looking uh, CGI human characters. Towards the end, though, as with most of these movies, things get a little bit into the into video game territory with big kind of, you know, big misshapen bosses and a, and a sort of a big smackdown battle. That's kind of be to be expected in something like this or, you know, a Resident Evil film. They kind of tend to follow these um, these color by number templates. The characters themselves are also very sort of stereotypical for anybody who's familiar with um, manga or anime. That they're, they're fairly cookie cutter. You've got these male characters with attitude. Your protagonist, he's like this noble guy who must save people at all costs. Um, they, you know, they have these monologues about you know, doing the right thing or, you know, being stupid or, you know, just being a jerk. All the, you know, there, there's the guy who's kind of like the, the young loner. So all these archetypes that you're familiar with, you're going to see here. The, the two female characters they have, of course, you know, we, I don't want to get too deep into, into male gaze or that kind of stuff, but it's very present here. I mean, they're wearing skin tight, rubber looking black suits form-fitting, and a lot of attention to detail when they run and certain body parts bounce. <laughs> um, uh, you know, there's a lot of attention to detail just in that. I'm sure they had a team just assigned for the bounce, as it were. Um, you know, so, but again, it is pushing that envelope of what they can do. And if you're somebody who likes that, aste that aesthetic and likes that look, this is something that you'll definitely want to see. Uh, more so for the visuals, less so for the narrative. Uh, as I said, comparable to the more recent release of um, of the series Cyborg 009, um, that, can, that doesn't look as good. It's a different kind of animation. They're more going for sort of the cartoon render look there. And 
obviously as a video series they're not striving for that same kind of high budget look but you do get better narrative arcs because you can spend much more time with the various characters and and their relationships as they develop you know they're just like half hour episodes so you get about five hours of content in total versus the hour and a half that you get with a movie like this um you know so i'd say you know if this is if, if you're a fan of anime at all even if you're not a fan of the the live action stuff like the Gantz movies i didn't really like them all that much i i thought the concept was cool but i just don't think they did enough with them um and here even though it falls short it's just of a visual spectacle to see so you know check out both of them because and at the very least support this stuff because i think the more that people go out and watch it and rate it and support it um, it sends a message to platforms like Netflix that, yeah, you know, get this stuff out, get it out quick, because this is the kind of stuff that, you know, people want to see. And hopefully Netflix will continue um, to pump out this content our way. Uh, Kevin, any idea if this is uh, this has shown up over there in uh, Hong Kong Netflix at all? I think it does. It does. I, I checked the daily uh, editions pretty. I think this uh, pretty often. I think there's a global uh, acquisition. Um, and I think they, uh, yeah, it was out, but, uh, I was never a big fan of Gantz. I, like I said, I, like you said, I, I watched both films, but I don't remember much of it. Um, I remember not liking them very much. So, um, unfortunately I might have to give this one a skip, but actually if it's a standalone thing, I may give it a chance. Like, like you said, it's important to give this the viewership so that encourages Netflix to get more of it. So, um, um, yeah, if it's a standalone story, I might give it a chance, especially now that you talk about the bounce. Yeah, I can't miss it. <laughs> That's all for the bounce. Yeah, it is. It is standalone. There is a, a slight twist thrown in at the end, a, a twist ending, which I think is kind of featured in in the films. Um, I think fans of the of the the story will kind of see it coming, or or expect it. Um, doesn't I mean it adds a little bit to the to the overall story for a, a new viewer. And, but it'll still, again, it, it doesn't really delve deeply into the mythos, but it's only 96 minutes, so it's a fairly quick and, and easy watch as well. And again, some of the stuff they're doing visually is just amazing in terms of what they can do as they push this boundary between sort of realism and anime and, and mashing it up together. So if you get a chance, check it out. Let us know what you think. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. And you have been listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Snauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. And we get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you would like to be part of the show, please get in touch with us at our website. That is kongcast.com, K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T.com. You can follow us over on Twitter as well. That's twitter.com slash kongcast. You can email us eastscreen at gmail.com. And you can follow us over on Facebook at eastswests. As always, I urge you to follow along with Kevin and all the things that he's doing and tweeting and socializing about. So where can they find out more about you, sir? Well, you can uh, read uh, my work uh, on the Discovery Magazine and Silk Road Magazine on uh, Cathay Pacific Airways and Cathay Dragon Flights. Um, I think we're soft launching a digital site soon, so you'll be able to see our latest content. Uh, but until then, the March issue, 
Uh, there's an interview with me and uh, casting director Nina Gold, uh, who uh, casted um, shows like Game of Thrones and uh, also the new Star Wars films, except for Rogue One, the new, the, you know, the, the important ones, Episode Seven and Eight, <laughs> all casted by her. Um, uh, so there's an interview with me and her uh, in the March issue. There's also uh, my write-up of uh, Manchester by the Sea. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's all in the March issue. And you can follow me on Twitter. I am at the Golden Rock. That's one word, at the Golden Rock. Uh, I was retweeted by Duncan Jones and Neil Gaiman, people. Uh, huge, well, huge news for myself. Didn't add many list followers. There was a is a tweet about the new uh, Miyazaki Hayao movie, but it got me like like six hundred retweets. I was very happy. Sorry, it was like contemporary humble brag, um, <laughs> modern IT humble brag, whatever. But um, yeah, you can follow me. <laughs> you can see if I get. You can see my fall from grace uh, on Twitter. I am at the Golden Rock. That's one word where I only get two retweets. Going back to getting two retweets and maybe one like once in a while. Um, once again, that's Golden Rock, the Golden Rock. You can also um, uh, email me at uh, goldenrock at gmail.com. And uh, I'm working on a little something that I may be able to uh, announce in the next episode or two. Um, but uh, I might be able to add to this little section uh, in the coming weeks. All right, excellent. And uh, don't feel bad, sir. All of my followers are bots. So <laughs> Uh, yeah, next episode is going to be episode 219, and I think, Kevin, you're going to be talking about the film Sisterhood, right? That's right. And hopefully, hopefully, my fingers are crossed, and I'm going to do my utmost because I'm dying to see this film. We're going to be talking about the latest in the X-Men franchise and the last film to be starring Hugh Jackman uh, in that franchise, Logan. So looking forward to that. All of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Screen West Screen Podcast saying we wish you good viewing, as always, and we'll see you next time. We'll see you next year, people. Oh, sorry, next next week. That's what the card says, right? The card says next year. So oh right, the wrong I got the wrong card. Sorry. See you next week, everybody. <laughs>